1: Hi everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Today I'm speaking with Brian Fallon. He is the director of the Lyme and Tick-Borne Diseases Research Center at Columbia University Irving Medical Center where he leads a research team focused on biomarkers, diagnostics and treatment. Brian, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Glad to be here.
1: So, what got you involved in Lyme and and Tick-Borne Diseases Research?
2: Well, I live in um, I live in Connecticut, and as you know, Lyme disease was first identified and described in Old Lyme, Connecticut. So many of my friends and family members were getting sick with Lyme disease, and so that was one of my initial interests. And then when I learned that Lyme disease is caused by a spirochete, um, and that there were many similarities between Lyme disease and syphilis, because syphilis is also a spirochetal illness, and in the history of psychiatry, we know that uh, syphilis can cause lots of psychiatric problems, memory problems, cognitive problems, uh, and a full range of psychotic uh, and other symptoms. Uh, I thought, well, it's important as a psychiatrist, at least, because that's what I am, to start to look at whether Lyme disease might also cause some psychiatric problems.
1: And uh, so you've put together this book, Conquering Lyme Disease, Science Bridges the Great Divide, um, which is a very comprehensive book. I, I, um, I quite enjoyed, enjoyed it, um, Lyme being part of my story and um, the fact that all the information that you need, especially as a new patient dealing with this, is right there in this book
2: yeah thank you. i'm glad that you I'm glad that you liked it. It certainly is uh comprehensive. Um, what i The reason we wrote that book was because as a teacher, uh, I have students come join me during the summer between first and second year of medical school, and um each year, I want to teach them about Lyme disease and the other tick-borne illnesses, and I found that I was repeating myself a lot and trying to pull up old articles. Uh, that are really informative um, and I thought well why don't I try to put all of this in one place so during the summer about four or five years ago I had a very smart medical student named Jennifer Sotsky uh, who uh, was joining me and I was thinking well what am I going to do with her during these eight weeks because I'm a pretty busy person and I don't really want someone hanging around and bothering me all summer long <laughs> so, so I thought well why don't I give her a project? And I knew that she had a master's in narrative medicine, so I figured that she could write. Um, and I, so I suggested to her, would you like to uh, put together a, you know, a small pamphlet or something, a brochure or, or, or just a little booklet on Lyme disease? <clears throat> she said, sure. And I said, well, why don't you go to our website and download a bunch of the stuff on the website and start working on it and, uh, you know, periodically show me what you've done and, and we'll work on it together. And so she very diligently uh, went off to the library and started doing her work quietly, and um, she certainly sat in on interviews with me with new patients as, as they came along. And then by the end of the summer, she had a manuscript that was about maybe 50 pages long, and uh, it... It was very impressive, but certainly nothing that I wanted to publish because it was outdated, because it's hard to keep your website updated and, and, and it didn't contain some of the latest exciting news. So I said to her, look, if you want to continue working on this, you can, but I know you're going back to medical school and medical school is super busy. Uh, so it's up to you. And she said, I'd like to continue working on it. So I said, okay. So she did. And each, every three or four months, she'd come back with, a new edition, a new chapter, uh, I kept suggesting things. I thought she wouldn't come back, but she kept coming back, and by the end of two years, she came back with like 100 pages, and I thought, wow, now I, I have a big responsibility on my hands, which is to <laughs> produce, make this into a book that we can publish. And so I took it over from there, and I, I suddenly realized I was giving a very popular talk called uh, Science Bridges the Great Divide. Uh, And I talked about the good news and the bad news associated with Lyme disease. And uh, at that point in history, which was about, uh, you know, four or three years ago, I I started to get really excited about what was going on nationally and internationally in um, helping to improve diagnostics and treatment approaches. And the science was uh, moving so fast uh, because of advances in, uh, genetic sequencing and because of advances in computational, uh, bioinformatic work, uh, that all of a sudden things were possible that never had been possible before. And, and, uh, so I wanted to share some of the excitement that I was, learning about at conferences with the patient community as well as with physicians. So we wrote this book called Conquering Lyme Disease, and it is both basic in terms of bringing, bringing you up to date on the basics, but it also gives you the latest stuff in terms of what's happening out there in the scientific world.
1: Well, which is something that, that we do need. I think there's a lot of misunderstandings um, even over what Lyme is um, or its existence. I don't know if this happens in America, but um, a very common comment that specialists say to patients in Canada querying about Lyme is, I don't believe in Lyme. Not that they don't believe in chronic Lyme or that they don't believe that it's here. They actually just flat out don't believe that it's a thing at all, um, which is very discouraging for somebody who's even questioning can this be part of my complex of what's causing my symptoms
2: yeah that is very discouraging I agree and it's not just in Canada where that occurs it happens here in the United States as well I don't quite understand that statement but I have heard it I don't believe in Lyme what does that mean (laughs) Lyme is not a religion it's not
3: something.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it's not, not. Something you believe in. It's, it's either it's 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 a disease, and it's caused by a bacterium called Borrelia burgdorferi, and it, we know it a lot about that bacterium. We know that it's transmitted by a tick, and it's transmitted by a particular kind of tick. So if you're living in an area, or if you've traveled through an area to an area where there is that particular kind of tick. Then it's possible that you may have acquired um, the agent that causes Lyme disease. So you don't have to necessarily live in a Lyme endemic area, but you could have traveled to one. Um, and, and Lyme disease is not just in the uh, North American continent; it's it's a global disease. So it's found in Europe, in Asia. And if you've been to those places, you may have acquired it as well. And maybe there are somewhat different strains and genome species there, but they they share many similar characteristics. So the whole notion, I don't believe in Lyme disease, is totally ridiculous. And maybe what what a physician is saying when they say that is, well, I don't believe that Lyme disease can cause anything other than a rash. So that most physicians, I, I think any educated physician would know that Lyme disease can cause a... Small rash that gets bigger in size and expands. It's called erythema migrans, uh, and it's usually not extremely itchy. And but it can be can be as large as a dinner plate or larger. Uh, and to make the definition in the U. S. at least, it has to be at least two inches. sometimes the tick bite itself can cause some local irritation that isn't a Lyme rash, but that's usually small, like half an inch. Um, But anyway, that Lyme rash is well-recognized. The swollen joint is usually well-recognized. But even here in Connecticut, where I live, and I work in New York, I encounter patients who presented with a big swollen knee, and nobody bothered to even think about Lyme arthritis, which is peculiar to me that someone wouldn't have thought about it. Um, Certainly, if someone presents with facial nerve palsy, which is the weakness of the one side of the face, or sometimes both sides of the face, so that you start drooling and you can't close your eyelids and you look like you've had a stroke. That's a very dramatic thing. And typically, patients go to the emergency room when that happens. Uh, and at least uh, in Lyme endemic areas, such as the Northeast, the Midwest, uh, or Pacific coastal areas, or the Atlantic coastal areas in the US, and hopefully in, in Canada as well, people are, would recognize that as a possible manifestation of, of uh, Lyme disease. Uh, but you know, doctors don't aren't aware of all the different manifestations. So you can have uh, meningitis. Uh, doctors should be aware of that because it's well recognized that you can get a meningitis with severe headaches and nausea and vomiting, and light and sound sensitivity from from Lyme disease when it uh, enters the central nervous system. Doctors often don't realize or think about Lyme disease if there are some cardiac problems. So you might have a cardiac arrhythmia. Uh, which, if not recognized quickly, could potentially lead to death if you have a full, complete heart block. Um, so that can be quite dangerous. Um, doctors often aren't aware, for example, that patients may present not with a characteristic rash, not with the swollen joint, not with the classic neurologic signs, but they may present simply with flu-like symptoms where the person's feeling feverish, maybe have some headaches, muscle pains, joint pains, um, really prominent fatigue, maybe memory problems or verbal fluency problems. But uh, it's understandable doctors might not immediately think of Lyme disease, but if it occurs at a time when the ticks are more rampant and active, such as in the spring or early summer or in the fall, uh, Lyme disease really should be considered because about 20% of the time uh, in studies that have been done here in the U.S., the initial presenting symptoms are those non-specific flu-like symptoms. And if you don't think of Lyme disease, you're going to miss it. And then a person might be suffering with these symptoms for weeks or months, and the symptoms might go away on their own and not come back, or they might come back more severely uh, A year later, where you suddenly develop really prominent cognitive problems and and profound fatigue and arthralgias, joint pains all over and muscle pains all over, it can be a problematic illness when it's not caught early and treated early.
1: Well, what, one thing I want to talk about is, is the rash because um, that is something that is definitely expected here in Canada. If you're bitten by a tick, you get a target rash. It looks like that. It is that. And you have to know that you were bitten and have seen the tick. Um, and, and I know from from studies, and I've actually seen um, different quotes on the percentage, um, but not everybody gets the rash. And, and I think that that can also cause some blindness. Is of, well, you don't have the rash, so this can't be happening.
2: That's exactly right. I mean, there's a, there's a number of things about the rash that are important to know. One is that the characteristic bullseye rash, that's actually not the most characteristic feature of the rash. The, only 20% of the time does it look like a target or a bullseye. 80% of the time, it's a confluent, smooth, reddish, pinkish, maybe a little bluish sometimes, a rash. And the main thing about it is that it's, and it can be oval-shaped or triangular-shaped or circular-shaped. And the main, main point about it is that it expands. So if you're watching a rash and you put a circle around it when, when you first see it, and then it expands beyond that size, that would be consistent with a lime rash. But to think that it has to be a bullseye is a huge mistake because only 20% of the time is it a bullseye. Um, And the other point you made, which is that lots of patients or a number of patients don't see the rash or maybe didn't develop a rash, is certainly true. I mean, what and how do we know whether they had a rash or didn't have a rash? Because the rash could occur, if the tick bite occurs in your scalp and is hidden by the hair, you're not going to see a rash. If it occurs in your back and you're single and you don't have someone checking your body or seeing your body periodically, you're not going to see it. If it occurs behind your knee, which is a really common place for it, you're not going to see it. Um, So uh, there's a lot of reasons why people might miss the rash, Uh, and sometimes it's because they um, maybe didn't get a rash, but more often it's probably because they got the rash, it just wasn't seen or recognized.
1: Um, well, I I never had a rash that that we saw. Um, it we're not sure. I had several tick bites in my life, and we're not sure which one, um, create you know g- gave me the Lyme. But um, you know it was so long ago that I don't know if I had fever like symptoms or flu-like because it was so long ago right so it yeah and it took 14 years of searching um, before I was finally diagnosed Um, and so to think back and go and you know was it this was it that it's really difficult to put those pieces together and I I recognize that I will never know where I got the Lyme or when
2: yeah cause and effect is very hard to um, narrow down with Lyme disease unfortunately so you can, have, you can have, I mean, the early studies of Lyme disease where you, the people had the rash, and they didn't treat them in the early days because they didn't know that antibiotics were necessarily the right treatment. Uh, among those who weren't treated, a good portion of them, nine months later or, or a year later, developed a big swollen joint. Uh, so that was the Lyme arthritis. But if they hadn't known about the rash or seen the rash, would they think of Lyme arthritis? Would they think it was caused by... Uh, Infection from a tick bite ten months earlier or a year earlier, and then there was then there was a study uh, published in I think it was Journal of Infectious Disease in, in the late 90s, um, in which they followed patients up who had developed encephalopathy. Encephalopathy refers to the cognitive impairments, the memory problems, the brain fog, the uh, word finding problems, the uh, slow processing speed, so that you feel like you're brain is working like molasses, moving so very slowly, (laughs) Um, they found that those patients who develop the cognitive problems, those cognitive problems uh, called Lyme encephalopathy might not emerge until two or three years after the initial infection. So, you know, knowing, trying to say that cognitive problems that emerge in three years after an infection are due to the initial infection three years earlier is is hard unless you have a rip-roaring positive Lyme test and, then, and you have positive antibodies and elevated white blood cells in your spinal fluid, then that's, that's sort of a gold standard for um, central nervous system infection. But a number of patients don't have the, that gold standard and don't have the abnormal spinal fluid uh, that is so helpful if you do get it um, because at least it confirms the diagnosis. So what ends up happening here in the U.S. at least is that doctors end up um, falling on one of two sides of the decision-making process. On one side is, well, your spinal fluid is negative, uh, and so therefore I'm not going to treat, even though it might be Lyme disease. I don't think it is, because your spinal fluid is negative, and if you had neurologic Lyme disease, it would be positive. Or they say, well, we know that spinal fluid can sometimes be negative uh, with standard tests, even though, people do have neurologic Lyme disease, and therefore, uh, we're going to treat you for the possibility of Lyme disease. Um, So that happens uh, quite a bit here in the U.S., and that's a reasonable approach by an informed physician um, to try to help the patient. But of course, if the antibiotics aren't working, um, and you've tried different types, uh, then you have to wonder and question your original diagnosis. Maybe it's not Lyme disease. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's some other kind of infection, or maybe it's it's unrelated
1: uh, cognitive problem due to another process. Um, we're we're going to talk about this more when we come back. We're talking today with Brian Fallon, and we're discussing discussing his book, Conquering Lyme Disease. We'll be back shortly.
4: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
5: and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
6: How much health and wellness information have you been exposed to today? Listen to Prescription for Success with Dr. Emile Haldi. Healing and empowerment start from within, but it also takes the best knowledge and advice. That's what you'll find here. Dr. Haldi and his guests will help you make the right life-enhancing decisions for well-being success. Tune in live every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Prescription for Success. There is a difference in health and wellness programs. There can be mainstream programs, and then there is something extra. That something extra is called tips to keep you healthy, happy, and motivated with your host, Kristen Harper. If you want to hear some behind-the-scenes talk radio when it comes to health and wellness, the why as well as the how,
3: A stain-free clean home is something to be proud about but it's hard to maintain when you're using cleaning products that don't work well or take forever to use. Q-Carbona, a household brand that has turned their decades of cleaning experience into products that get the job done fully, quickly and easily. When I first heard about stain devils, my stain removing game was changed. Think about this, if you have a chocolate stain, it doesn't make sense. treat it with a formula that removes wine because they are chemically different. Knowing this, Carbona created specific stain removers for specific stain types. Genius, right? Beyond stain removers, they have highly efficient products for your laundry, carpets, and washing machine. My co-host Oliver, who is a Chihuahua cross, wants to remind you not to forget about the pet stain and odor remover. Want to start living your life unstained? ShopCarbona.com
1: with code F-T-T-C for 20% off your order. Happy cleaning. Today we're talking with Brian Fallon and we're discussing his book, Conquering Lyme Disease. Now, Brian, one thing that I think is really important for us to talk about in relationship to Lyme is the complications of diagnosis. How is Lyme diagnosed?
2: Well, Lyme disease is a is a diagnosis that's based on risk, means which means uh, have you been exposed to an area where there are ticks that carry the agent of Lyme disease? It's based on clinical symptoms, which means do you have a cluster of clinical symptoms that are commonly seen among patients with Lyme disease? And third, it's based on corroboration, if possible, uh, with the serologic and other tests that exist uh, for Lyme disease.
1: And so um, it, is there, com- there there is obviously complications with the testing or we wouldn't have to take everything else into consideration
2: yeah yeah so for example uh, an early let's just go stage by stage so an early Lyme disease when you get the initial tick bite and the sparky gets transmitted from the tick into your skin and then sometimes it gets passed into the bloodstream and it goes to your brain or your muscle tissues or your joints. In those early phases, uh, during the first three weeks, two to three weeks, the blood tests are going to be negative most of the time. And uh, given that they're negative most of the time, Lyme disease at that stage is definitely a clinical diagnosis. You don't want to wait until the blood tests come back positive, which could occur six weeks later. Uh, You want to treat right away when the person's got infection. So if you see someone who has what you think might be a Lyme rash or has flu-like symptoms after a tick bite, you should definitely consider Lyme disease as a possibility and treat it if that's what you end up thinking it is. Um, even in later stages of Lyme disease, however, uh, some patients may test negative in the blood but have Lyme disease. And you might ask me, well, how do you know the person has Lyme disease if they're testing negative in the blood and you didn't see the rash and they have meningitis or they have some other symptoms? Well, partly it's because of additional tests that might corroborate the diagnosis and partly it's based on you don't know. Uh, and uh, you can't be absolutely sure, but if a person responds to antibiotics, at the very least, you can say they have an antibiotic responsive illness. So we have to, doctors, you know, patients are not machines, and everybody's body is unique, and some produce a robust antibody response against infection. Others don't produce that robust antibody response. And so for some patients, the tests might uh, not work so well, For while for many others, it will work well. Uh, and the testing itself is problematic. So let me give you an example <clears throat> at Columbia. Medical Center where I work in New York, uh, we have a second opinion clinic. And you know, for most people it's a 10th opinion. They come to see us because they're not sure what they have or why they have it. They think it might be due to a tick-borne microbe but they're not sure. Oftentimes uh, they've had numerous negative tests and so they come to us. So when they come to us, we typically send a person's blood out to three different labs ordering a Western blot at three different labs. Now, why would I order the same test at three different labs? And the reason is because each lab has their own different way of doing the test. They have their own strain of spirochetes that they've cultured over a period of time, and they use that strain for creating their Western blot. Uh, So what ends up happening, uh, not uncommonly, is that A patient tests fully positive with, let's say, six bands on the IgG Western blot, which is sort of like a gold standard for a positive Lyme disease blood test, but tests negative with only one or two bands at the other two labs. Does that mean that the first lab that was positive was wrong? No, it just means that that lab has a strain that the antibodies in the person's blood reacted to and therefore you could show the positivity. So that's that's one reason why people might test negative on a blood test and actually have Lyme disease because there's variability in the uh, laboratory testing. It doesn't mean one lab is better than another, it just means that they use uh, different methods. Um, another really interesting uh, report was published in the preeminent Journal of Infectious Disease, Clinical Infectious Disease in, uh, about two years ago there it was a study for, from Denmark, and they looked at patients with neurologic Lyme disease. And uh, in patients who tested positive in the spinal fluid, 15% of those patients, like one out of um, six patients, tested negative in the blood for Lyme disease. Isn't that amazing? Uh, mm-hmm. And I could tell you that 90% of neurologists probably are not aware that you could have neurologic Lyme disease uh, if you're, even if your blood test is negative. Um, and then earlier in, the, in like the mid-90s in, in the U.S., Dr. Patricia Coyle is a neurologist at Stony Brook University in Long Island here in New York State. She did a study looking at the standard uh, Lyme tests in the spinal fluid. I'm focusing on spinal fluid just because I do a lot with neurologic Lyme disease. And what she found was that... Um, 80% of the patients might test positive in the spinal fluid, but 20% don't. And then when she did a little trick in the spinal fluid and lowered the pH, that she was able to dissociate the antibodies and the antigens and what are called immune complexes. She was then be able to demonstrate that, in fact, there were antibodies there. But the uh, specific tests that standardly are used did not detect it about 20% of the time. So all this is to say is that medical science uh, is not 100%. It's basically a combination of clinical judgments supported by laboratory testing. And if you're lucky and you see the rash, that's great. If you're lucky and you have the full positive blood test, that's great. But some patients might have Lyme disease and not have a fully positive blood test. We know that as a fact. Um, And therefore, clinicians need to use their clinical judgments to decide uh, whether or not to consider a course of treatment for patients.
1: Well, you know, I, I, I reading your book um, brought into my mind um, a show I did on April fifteenth um, about a superbug, and um, in the book um, it, it was Stephanie Strathdee and and her husband Thomas Patterson, and and they they gave. Um, a lot of description about how the bacterias work and, and adapt, and, you know, in the beginning, they had this bug that could adapt to... Um, it, it, it was adapting to antibiotics, so antibiotics didn't work, and then they used phage treatment, but then it started to adapt to that, and and eventually um, Thomas was was saved, um, so it just ruined the whole book. But, no, it's a, it's a good book. But, you know, the, it, yeah. seems, it seems like... Um, you know, Lyme is in that category as well. Um, you know, just talking about how hard it is to test and that we've got to do all these these tricks to find it and that it might still be there so that it's a gray area which makes it very, very difficult and I think this is why people get so fresh, doctors and specialists get frustrated by it and and patients who can't get answers. Um, but but there's also something else that you, you talk about in your book which is persisters, which is um, something that is, we're just starting to talk about with Lyme, and and that just seems like it's in this category of superbugs.
2: Yeah, persisters are very interesting. Um, I didn't even know what a persister was until about four years ago when I invited uh, Dr. Kim Lewis at Northeastern University to come give a talk on um, his work with persister bugs, and as he explained, persister bugs are common, uh, in a, in a number of different, with a number of different microbial infections. And basically refers to microbes that, um persist despite standard antibiotic therapy. Uh, and it doesn't even mean that they've formed a resistance. It just means that they're quiescent. They're, uh, less metabolically active. And so they're less likely to be killed by antibiotics or the standard antibiotics. And uh, so let's say uh, for Lyme disease, as an example, you treat a patient uh, and 95% of the spirochetes are killed uh, with the antibiotics, let's say. Uh, in most people, the immune system will wipe up and sweep up the rest of the spirochetes if they become active. But in some patients, those quiescent, dormant spirochetes that weren't killed, are those persister bugs, uh, when they become active, the immune system doesn't recognize them or doesn't kill them, and then a person has a resurgence or a relapse of infection. Now, what I just told you uh, was considered to be um, false and wrong, and uh, a uh, almost like a dogmatically incorrect statement by the medical community until about 2008. And in 2008, um, Dr. Stephen Bartold and his group at University of California, Davis, published a study where they showed that the spirochetes can persist in the mouse model despite a good course of antibiotic therapy. And so they get the initial course of antibiotic therapy after being infected with the Borrelia, which causes Lyme disease in the mouse. And if you look for the infection, let's say two or three months later, you can't find it. But if you look for the infection six months later or seven months later, you can find it. And the way to find it is not to do a blood test, but it's to take a tick that's a clean tick, meaning it's never been infected, and have it feed on the mouse that was previously treated. And then after the feeding, you test the blood inside the tick And in the case that he published in the series that he published, a number of the ticks that have fed on these previously treated mice were able to show the Borrelia spirochete or DNA of the Borrelia spirochete. What that means is that the DNA was there in the mouse, which means that most likely those spirochetes weren't killed. So. That was a striking paper, and it created a lot of controversy, and it shook up the. It was one of those uh, cataclysmic events in the sense that it sort of challenged the standard dogma that the spirochetes are all killed with the initial treatments. Well, what he showed was that, in fact, they weren't killed. And lo and behold, if you go look at the literature a little more carefully, which many of the doctors in the community had done, but the academics, hadn't really paid attention to. There was an article in the 90s by Dr. Strabinger, who was a veterinarian. Uh, at that time, he was a PhD, PhD student at Cornell. Um, he had studied beagles and who had been infected with uh, Borrelia, the agent of Lyme disease, and treated them with antibiotics. And he was also able to show by uh, PCR, which is molecular identification of the spirochetes, uh, six months later that uh, that there was evidence of persistence of the Lyme spirochete's DNA. But that was published in a really good journal back then, but it was sort of ignored because it was so uh, off the mark in terms of nobody else was thinking that way. Um, but when 2008 came and Dr. Barthold's group, and he's one of the world experts in animal models of Lyme disease, when he published it, everybody started to believe it. And then it was shown in the monkey model as well by Dr. Embers at Tulane. Um, And so people all around the world now have been able to demonstrate that the spirochetes can persist despite standard antibiotics. Now, one of the really exciting things that's happening right now is that different research groups are beginning to look at, well, what uh, agents can kill these persisters. And there are agents that can kill and methods of treating these persisters that can be effective in eradicating them. Um, So at Columbia right now, we're looking at um, a study using disulfiram, which is uh, an agent that you actually give alcoholics to help them to stop drinking because if an alcoholic drinks while taking this pill called disulfiram, they get a terrible, terrible bodily uh, reaction to it that actually can be quite dangerous. <clears throat> so they don't drink, and it helps to uh, reduce the craving, uh, or at least the uh, the uh, the taking of the alcohol. But in the in vitro setting, in the lab, if you give disulfram to the Borrelia, to the Lyme spirochete, it eliminates all of the spirochetes. It kills them much better, actually, than doxycycline or amoxicillin. So that... Is a fascinating finding, which, if it's helpful for people with persistent symptoms who might have persistent infection, then that'll be a, that'll be a good result. We don't know if that's going to be the case, but that's one of the things we're looking at. Other groups, like Dr. Ying Zhang at Johns Hopkins, has come up with a number of different combinations of antibiotics that can be helpful at killing the Borrelia persisters in the. Laboratory setting. Dr. Kim Lewis has come up with some additional ones at Northeastern, and then there are physicians or scientists at Stanford University as well who are doing the same. So, so all of this is very exciting. Uh, we need to test them in animal models and then test them in humans. So we're still in the uh, working phase right now, but I think patients, patient community, should be very excited by uh, that potential. Now that's working under the, I'm sorry, I'm talking so much, but that, that <laughs> that's, okay. that's working, under, that's working <laughs> under the hypothesis that it's all persistent infection, but it's not. People also have post-infectious problems, which means the immune system gets triggered and then it doesn't shut off. And then you have ongoing symptoms. So the question is, how do you quiet down the overactive immune response? So that's one problem that can occur. Another that can occur is that, The spirochetal, initial spirochetal infection causes changes in the brain's neurochemistry and the neural activation patterns. And then even though the spirochete is gone, those abnormally activated neural networks continue. So the person becomes, let's say, hypersensitized to pain or they became hypersensitized to mood changes, uh, or to lights and sounds, sensory stimuli. And that actually may no longer be due to active infection, but due to the previous infection. So that, in order to correct it, antibiotics are not the answer, but it's uh, 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 interventions targeting the brain's networks.
1: Um, I, I don't mind that you, that you went on about that. It was really interesting. Um, we are going to take a quick break, and I want to pick this up where we left off. Uh, we're talking today with Brian Fallon, and we're discussing his book, Conquering Lyme Disease. We'll be back shortly.
4: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash voiceamerica.
5: Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas.
6: How much health and wellness information have you been exposed to today? Listen to Prescription for Success with Dr. Emile Haldi. Healing and empowerment start from within, but it also takes the best knowledge and advice. That's what you'll find here. Dr. Haldi and his guests will help you make the right life-enhancing decisions for well-being success. Tune in live every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Prescription for Success.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Brian Fallon, and we're discussing his book, Conquering Lyme Disease. So, Brian, one thing that um, really spikes my interest, um, it, you know, we know that Lyme can persist, and we know that symptoms can also persist. It can trigger inflammation and, and that kind of thing. But the the neuro network, um, it, it changes your brain chemistry. I found that really interesting. Can you just talk a little bit more about what that means for people and what that can look sure. like? Sure.
2: Sure. I mean, what's, what's really interesting to me is that you can have peripheral things going on in your body. They can be going on in your GI system, in your gut, because of altered bacteria, let's say, uh, uh, in your gut. They can occur uh, in your blood because the immune response is generating cytokines. And then these trigger changes in the brain. And the changes in the brain uh, basically activate certain neural Networks and neural networks are nothing other connect other than networks connecting one portion of the brain to another portion of the brain. Um, an example of a neural network would be the pain network. Uh, the pain network uh, might start in the insula and then and then go into other regions of the brain. Um, what's fascinating is that some of those n- patterns that are networks of that govern pain and the modulation of pain overlap with the networks that modulate mood. So that is so interesting because it's so often the case that people who are, have a pain syndrome also have a mood syndrome or people who have a mood syndrome are more sensitized to pain. And what's also interesting is that treatments that psychiatrists use for depression, for example, some of those treatments are actually very helpful at reducing What's called centralized pain or brain pain it's also called. And uh, we know that when people have these centralized pain networks that they're going to experience uh, pain in different parts of their body much more intensely than if that brain network wasn't hyperactivated. So the prior infection may have triggered the hyperactivation of these networks Uh, the exact mechanism I can't tell you because we don't know exactly, but certainly there are a lot of things across the blood brain barrier that may do that. Um, but that to correct those abnormally firing neural networks, things like transcranial magnetic stimulation might be helpful where magnets are put on the head, uh, with, Special uh, care that's a, it's a device that's FDA approved here in the United States for the treatment of uh, of depression, as well as uh, it seems to be quite effective as well for some p- chronic pain syndromes. Um, certain uh, medications that work on, on on the brain neural networks, such as uh, gabapentin, can be helpful or what are called the serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. Uh, uh, those can be a, a very effective as well. So you know, patients experience joint pain, muscle pain, but they also experience uh, electric shock-like sensations. They experience painful numbness and tingling. They, they experience uh, uh, what's called nerve pain. Um, and actually, some new studies have shown that if you do skin biopsies on these patients, you, uh, with Lyme disease, you may show evidence of what's called a small fiber neuropathy. Um, and what's quite interesting about that is that the small fiber neuropathy illnesses often are autoimmune mediated. Uh, so it could be that the immune response against the Borrelia spirochete was also targeting some of these small nerve fibers. And we know from studies in the 90s going way back that that in fact, uh, there's a portion of the Lyme spirochete that has that protein that, if the antibody attacks that, it will then also attack and and some human nerve tissue. So you can get what's called molecular mimicry or false identification of of, of human tissue instead of attacking the braille microbe, it's actually attacking the human tissue. So intravenous gamma globulin might be an appropriate treatment for those patients. So I'm very excited by some of these these new discoveries on, uh, to help patients with these both peripheral and central neurologic symptoms.
1: Well, so if somebody um, has finished their treatment, how do they know the difference if they continue to have symptoms, if it's persisters or inflammation or or um, something else going on?
2: That's a really important question, and obviously... A central question and right now we do not have a test of active infection that is widely recognized and accepted as a good test of active infection so this is so important so for example you can have a fully positive antibody test but not have active infection and that's because the antibody tests will stay positive for years sometimes as long as 10 years sometimes so you have a fully positive IgG western blot but you're healthy and you may be feeling sick, but you don't have any, any additional sparkies. So that's, that's, uh, that's problematic because we don't, what if you're not feeling well? What if you are feeling sick and you're wondering if you still have persistent infection? You're not going to know from the antibody test. Now, if you had, let's say, an ELISA that was declining over time, which is what it should do, and ELISA is an antibody quantitative antibody test if that declines over time, which it should do, but then it starts to rise again, then that suggests that you might have gotten reinfected or it suggests that maybe you had a latent infection that got reactivated so that can be uh, somewhat helpful in making that distinction there are some uh, there is a company here in the u s that has developed a uh, uh a antigen test of the urine uh, it's called a nanotrap assay test and it detects very tiny amounts of the Borrelia protein um and that at least in one paper that they published uh, looks highly sensitive and specific meaning a very accurate test of of active infection and I know that that, University, George Mason University, the people are doing a lot of work on developing uh, better versions of that test and more comprehensive versions of that test, not only for Lyme disease but other tick-borne organisms. Because one thing we didn't mention in this conversation today is that the ticks can carry more than the agent of Lyme disease and cause carry the agent of other diseases as well, such as Babesia and Anaplasma and Ehrlichia and certain viruses and uh, such as Powassan virus. So, uh, if we had tests that detects not just the agent of Lyme disease, but also some of these other microbial agents inside the ticks, that would be helpful as well.
1: Um, well, this is one of the things that um, does frustrate a lot of people that I'm treating. Is near the end of treatment, they they finish and then they get symptoms back um, later on, or or um, you know they, they can relapse, or you know there's always that fear that that can happen, um, and uh, yeah. it's important. Yeah. You know, it's important to know. I mean, it can happen, and um, we need to to be aware that. that 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 is just a reality that we just don't have the technology yet to know yes you're done this is gone
2: and you're absolutely right and it's also true that your immune system is primed right it's primed to recognize the borrelia spirochete but Sometimes when you have another infection that has some similarities to the Borrelia spirochete, you get a very similar cluster of symptoms and it's almost like you have this broad-based immune response to any infection. Uh, So it feels like you're getting the Lyme infection back again when actually you're not. So I, I often encourage patients not to jump to the conclusion that it's Lyme disease returning, but to give it some time, give it like a month or three weeks to a month or a little bit longer to see if it goes away, because oftentimes it will go away,
5: and then you haven't
2: uh, put yourself at the, uh, in the situation of, having, of taking antibiotics, getting better, and not knowing whether it was Lyme disease or not. So um, that's that's one thing I recommend. I also uh, I think it's important to note that in the studies of early Lyme disease, oftentimes Patients aren't fully better three months later. Maybe 15, 20% of the patients might have persistent symptoms three months later. But then, if you don't treat them and watch them out to six months, that number goes down to 5 to 10%. So that maybe at the end of a year, 95% of the patients report feeling recovered, but maybe 5 to 10% don't. Uh, so that over time, the symptoms can. Um, can abate, uh, even without treatment in some patients. So as you say, as a physician, it's highly challenging to to figure out, do I treat or do I not treat? So usually when people come to see me, if they've only had one course of treatment and they have a relapse of symptoms that are very similar to what they had before or similar to Lyme-like symptoms, I would recommend another course of treatment. and that's because I know from the literature and from uh, my own experience working with patients that people can benefit from a repeated course of therapy. That was certainly shown by Dr. Krupp's study at Stony Brook with post-treatment Lyme fatigue that patients who got a repeated course of therapy, in fact, did show an improvement in fatigue compared to those without placebo. So we know that that can happen. Um but after a while, if a person has gotten many courses of treatments, both intravenous treatment, which, which crosses, enters tissue more, more, uh, intensely than the oral antibiotics. So if they've gotten IV antibiotics and they've gotten oral antibiotics and they're still not getting better, then you have to try some of these other methods that aren't necessarily antibiotic methods to uh, try to help them. And oftentimes you can help them and they're very grateful.
1: Well, and and that's the thing um, I tell people all the time is you can't assume everything as Lyme. Uh, the body only has so many ways to to tell you that there's something wrong. So,
5: so that's you good. can't just yeah. say
1: oh Lyme, 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 Lyme all the time. There's got there can be other right. things that can happen as well. Yeah,
2: and you know one thing I didn't mention, which I should, which absolutely I should, is that uh, as a psychiatrist, psychiatric problems can occur. Irritability is really common. Emotional moodiness is really common. Uh, Um, Sometimes, rarely, patients may get a manic episode or or a psychotic episode that's rare. Sometimes it might get uh, a full-blown OCD episode Uh, that's rare, but it can occur, so people need to be alert, and anxiety is often very common, both because it's scary to have an illness where you don't know what you have or you don't know whether you still have persistent infection, Um, but also it can actually trigger anxiety and panic-like attacks.
1: So, um, w- with the psychiatric aspect, is there um, a situation where the Lyme can trigger, say, mood disorder or anxiety and then that does not go away?
2: Uh, yes, yeah. so both are true. It can trigger an uh, intense psychiatric disorder where if you treat antibiotics, the, the psychiatric problems go away. And it can also have a uh, result in a situation where the psychiatric disorders don't go away, but they were triggered by... Uh, Lyme disease, um, in which case then you have to use the regular psychiatric approaches to treating it, and oftentimes people will get better.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, one thing, we've, we've touched on this a little bit, but I want to talk about the Lyme wars, because I think this is really important for anybody um, who is has Lyme or thinks they may have Lyme, of why they can't get help. Can you just give us a brief description of what that yeah, is? Yeah, just
2: very brief. Yeah, very briefly, Lyme Wars refer to, and I have a long chapter in the book on this, uh, refer to the fact that, especially in the 90s, 1990s, and um, I think in Canada, it's happening right now, uh, which is this huge disagreement that's occurring between uh, academic doctors and community doctors and patients. So the academic doctors typically are those who are studying what's relatively easy to study, which is the patients who present with the rash. And when you study those patients, 95% of them get, or let's say 80 to 90% get dramatically better, uh, and they have no persistent problems. And yet, patients then present to these academic doctors who may not have recalled a rash, but might have a positive blood test, let's say, and and but they don't have the classic symptoms that, that these doctors working with early Lyme disease know And that confuses the academic doctors. And so they say, well, look, this isn't Lyme disease, it's something else, the psychiatric problem, or you're having somatization, or you're having a conversion symptom, or you're having fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome. And sometimes those diagnoses may be correct, but sometimes they may not be correct. And it's because the academics typically have been focused on the early Lyme disease phase. so that's one that's one of the reasons the Lyme wars existed because the community doctors these are their patients these they live in the community these are their neighbors these are the children these are the parents of their of their friends children you know so anyway it, these community doctors have to work and try to help their patients and so they're trying let's say an additional course of antibiotics and finding it helpful so then the community doctors start getting attacked by the academic doctors for let's say overtreating with antibiotics and they get sometimes they're at risk of losing their license if the medical boards mm-hmm. uh, get involved. And that can be an incredibly unpleasant, painful, um, wrenching prop, uh, situation for those physicians. I mean, they're losing their livelihood. They're courageously trying to treat these patients in the best way they know how. It's not like they're doing it to. Um, make money off the patients or to uh, to benefit uh, off the patients in some other way. They're really trying to help their patients. And maybe what they're doing is is not completely right, but maybe it is right. And and as we've learned from history in the U.S., some of those physicians working with patients and treating them with additional cores of antibiotics were, in fact, making the right decision. Um, but um, there's still a great deal of contentiousness about it. and That's what that's what they're called the Lyme bores, And the patients, as you can imagine, get enraged. So they They uh, organize and they protest and they uh, talk to their legislators to try to get um, laws passed to allow doctors to treat as they see fit. So that's, that's in a summary what the Lyme Wars were about.
1: Um, which I I think we could probably do a whole show talking about about this but I think I just want to touch on it before we ended because it is important for people to understand we talked about how difficult it is to diagnose Lyme and then it's very difficult to also get help and and it's not necessarily your doctor's fault if if they realize there's a situation they are at risk of losing their license at least here in Canada if they over treat or treat Lyme too often Um, so I think it's a important to, to understand what is happening so that we, we, you know, we're just, um, fighting the right people.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's important. It's important not to feel like there's a conspiracy out there of doctors getting together, trying to try to conspire against patients. Cause that's not happening. I mean, basically the academics are working with what they know, which is, uh, uh, science that's been done really carefully and well, and and they're, they're making their recommendations based on what they know. And community doctors are working more with their own experience and their own judgments, uh, so they're working with what they know as well as what's in the literature. So, mm-hmm. you know, over time, and the Lime Wars were terrible. It was very hard even for me to be a researcher in this area because... Uh, there was so much hostility towards the notion that people might have chronic symptoms or neuropsychiatric symptoms. Now, at least here in the U.S., that's much more widely accepted as a fact. People definitely can have chronic symptoms and definitely can have neuropsychiatric symptoms. We still don't have agreements on how to treat those patients, but at least there's agreement that these patients exist, which is uh, probably not the, not, not the case yet in Canada.
1: No, no, it's definitely not. Um, now, if anybody has any any more questions, um, how can they get a hold of you or your book?
2: Well, we have a great uh, website, wwwcolumbia org. That's columbia org, And we also have the book, which is called Conquering Lyme Disease, Science Bridges the Great Divide. They put in my name, Fallon, and Conquering Lyme Disease, and you'll get it. It's on Amazon. Uh, you can purchase it through Barnes & Noble. You can purchase it at the Columbia University Press, who are the publishers of books. There's lots of ways of getting it. And it just came out paperback, so it's I think it's $20 here in the U.S. It's not too expensive, and it's packed with information.
1: It definitely is. Well, um, Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. I, I loved our conversation.
2: I did too. Thank you. And I wish you well and, and all your listeners well.
1: Oh, thank you so much. And if anybody listening wants to know what I went through in my journey back to health with Lyme disease, you can find my story on my website at dr-risk.com. Be sure to pick up Brian's book if you want more information. As he said and I said, it is packed with information. You'll definitely learn something from it. Um, and uh, thank you so much for listening today. Be sure to make today a great day.